Thank you for that, for the singing. It was good to sing with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. This morning, we're going to take a break from our series in the book of Genesis. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and I've enjoyed that immensely, and I hope that you have been helped by that. But I thought it good for this month, leading up to Resurrection Sunday at the end of this month, it would be good for us to take this month and focus entirely upon the cross, the work of the cross, the achievements of the cross. Today we will be looking at the atonement, the atoning sacrifice of the cross. Next week we will look at the accomplishment of redemption. The week after that we will be looking at the accomplishment of propitiation. If you've ever wondered what that word means, propitiation, that is the week you don't want to miss. And then we will, the final week, be looking at the accomplishment of reconciliation. So for the entire month, we will be looking at the cross and what it achieves, what it accomplishes, and the hope is that it prepares us for the celebration of the resurrection. I believe our understanding, our, our joy, and our celebration of the resurrection will only go so far as we understand the accomplishment of the cross. And so we want to spend our month of March looking at the cross, considering the accomplishments and the achievements of the cross to prepare our hearts for the Resurrection Sunday. If you would, please stand with me. I'd like to invite you to stand as we read Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. Verse 12, this very, very central, important text for understanding the cross. Follow along with me as I read, starting in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How many of you know the Latin word for cross? The Latin word for cross is crux, which we say crux. The crux of an issue is the center point. The central element. We also get our word crucial from the word cross. For the cross is the central point of our Christian faith. The cross is everything to our Christian faith. And yet, if I were to ask you today, what does the cross mean? I'm sure you would be able to give me some very good answers. Most of all, we would hear that the cross means, as we just sang, we stand forgiven. Why did Christ die on the cross? To forgive us our sin. This is what most of us would answer, and we would be very right to answer that way. This is a good answer. But I'd like to make a distinction in our mind this morning between what is achieved upon the cross and the application of the cross. When we talk about the forgiveness of sin, our enjoyment of forgiveness of sin, we are right to talk about that. But forgiveness can only be applied because of the achievement of the cross. 
And there is a distinction. What does the cross achieve? What does the cross accomplish? We only enjoy, again, the applications of the cross when we understand the achievements of the cross. And it is here that I think we are sometimes maybe at a loss for explanation or understanding. Most of us, and I feel this in my own heart, okay, I'm I'm not like... I have to be careful of this. I'm not pointing the finger out at you and say, you, you know, it's pointing at all of us, myself included. We take for granted the achievements of the cross. Even as we come in here on a Sunday morning and sing about them, it's almost as if they were a given. We assume a lot about what Christ has accomplished. And when something, listen to this, when something is assumed, it is very quickly neglected. And when something is neglected, it is then forgotten. And when something is forgotten, it is very quickly then rejected. Do you know why false teaching and false narratives about Christianity persist? It is because we assume much. We're not very careful in our understanding. We're not very sharp in our understanding And this leads us away from the truth. So this morning I would like to focus on the atoning sacrifice of the cross. This sermon is a little different than what we normally do. Normally we take a text of Scripture, we read that text of Scripture, and then I explain that text of Scripture with some implication and then maybe some application. This is expositional preaching, and this is the main staple. This is what we live on. Expositional preaching is what we live on here at Trinity Church. This morning, however, this is not an expositional sermon. Okay, this is a theological sermon, and that is good too. Theological sermons are good for us, but if, if, if you're puzzled why I'm not walking through the entirety of Isaiah 52 and 53, that is why, because we want to look at this issue theologically, scripturally, but build a theology from the scriptures. So what does the cross mean? Well, the cross is first an event an historical event. Let's make sure that we place the cross in history, actual event. There was a man named Jesus who lived in the early part of the first century, and he hailed from a place called Nazareth. At some point around his 30th year, he begins to collect disciples around himself which set him apart as a teacher. And, and by the way, if you didn't have disciples following you, you're not a teacher. He's a teacher, and he proves it because there are 
a group of men, there's a group of men following him. There are men who've decided to travel around with him, and he teaches as a traveling preacher and teacher. His teaching was accompanied by many things that people did not understand, many things that people could not explain. Some consider them to be miracles proving that what he said was true. Others were confused by them. And so others rejected the works that he did. Some thought he might be the long-awaited Messiah, but many more were, again, confused by him. And then some, some in very important positions, found him to be a very dangerous man. Jesus. Jesus thus became a polarizing figure in the first century. Among the Jewish people, his popularity with people worried the religious leaders and the Jewish authorities. They found him to be creating instability for their people, challenging their power and influence, and all this led to the inevitable the ones in power dealt with Jesus, the undesirable situation he created. They conspired together and concocted a plan to remove Jesus, to get him out of their hair. They involved someone from his inner circle and carried out their plan to perfection. The result is a historical event, verifiable Jesus, from Nazareth, was crucified, experiencing the punishment of a common criminal. He was then buried in a borrowed tomb. This borrowed tomb was heavily guarded to make sure that his followers could not come and take his body and say he was still alive. This is, again, historical event. And then, three days later, the tomb that had been sealed and guarded was found empty, unsealed and empty. Again, historically verifiable. Not only was his body reported missing, but over 500 people. Now listen, if you were in a court of law and you had... You had three eyewitnesses, right? You got, you got an open and shut case. 500 people testified to seeing him alive and well. Those who he had gathered around himself, his disciples, who were a lot of times with the rest of the people confused, not knowing what to think, these same men sat down with him and ate with him and talked with him. And then, for the rest of their life, they, they to a man suffered greatly for the sake of Jesus. All of them, save one, going to their own deaths for Jesus. This is all historical fact. The historicity of these events cannot be refuted. Look, examine it, see for yourself. These events are historical, but 
In nothing that I have said have I, have I talked at all about what these events mean. What do these events mean? The Apostle Paul, in a letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, makes a statement in, regards, in regard to these events. 1 Corinthians 15, he says to the church at Corinth, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, Jesus, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So here we see Paul attaching meaning to these events. He says, first of all, that Christ died for our sins. And then he says that this is in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures is he referring to? The New Testament is not written at this point when Paul writes those words. He's referring to the Old Testament. Paul is saying in the Old Testament we find these events anticipated. If all we had was the Old Testament then we should be able to draw some definitive conclusions regarding the meaning of this event, the death of Christ and His resurrection. Indeed, it is the Old Testament that gives us Abraham willing to sacrifice his son at the last moment then. Remember, he takes Isaac up on the mountain willing to sacrifice his son, and at the last moment, Abraham, it says, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The night before Israel's salvation from Egypt, we see the order to take a lamb without blemish and without spot, to take the blood of that lamb and to spread that blood on the doorpost of their house so that the judgment of God in death would pass over them. Leviticus, we're given the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement when the high priest, on behalf of the people, would enter into the presence of God with the blood of an animal and make atonement for the sins of the people. On that same day, another animal would have the sins of the people imputed to it, transferred to it. The sins of the people would be literally transferred to this animal and then be released in the wild to carry away their sins. Chapter 17 of Leviticus, right after that, we have these words. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament given by God to Israel was based on the concept of imputing guilt and sin and therefore shedding or leading to the shedding of blood thereby taking the life of another, taking the life of another to atone for the guilty. 
All of these pictures and prescriptions seem to clearly anticipate the cross. This is what Paul is saying. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We see these pictures and prescriptions made explicit in Isaiah 52 and 53, what we read earlier just a few moments ago. Again, this is why Paul is able to say in accordance with the Scriptures. And yet, without the New Testament... we would be left with an incomplete picture, a true picture, but one that still is incomplete. The Old Testament anticipates the cross. The New Testament explains and interprets the cross. The New Testament interprets for us the cross event Without the New Testament, the revelation of the New Testament, and the preaching and teaching of the apostles, we would not fully grasp the cross and its meaning. We would not understand all of it. We would be unable to understand the fullness of its achievements. The apostles in the New Testament give us, with unmistakable clarity, the meaning of the cross. And it's, it's here, this is why I think it's important for us to consider this for the next few weeks. We want to be sharpened, reminded, instructed in regards to the meaning of the cross. So here's the question. What did the, Christ, what did the cross of Christ accomplish? What did Christ achieve upon the cross First, we've already begun to see this, the cross, this is the first point. So if you take notes, this is the, you want to write this down. The cross is an atoning sacrifice. The cross is an atoning sacrifice. Our understanding of atonement Maybe you would be able to define atonement. I don't, I don't know. But our understanding of atonement is hurt by mankind's flawed sense of justice and practice of justice. Even in the best cases, the justice system of man-made governments and legal systems and societies can only go so far as to point to the perfect justice of an eternally holy God. Atonement, atonement is at its basic level the reparation paid towards God for the offense of sin, meeting the just penalty of the offense, removing the guilt of sin from the offending party, and restoring right relationship with God. That is atonement. The reparation paid towards God for the offense, the meeting of the just penalty of the offense, the removing of the guilt of sin, and the restoration of a right relationship with God. This is true atonement.
The truth of atonement requires us to make three incontrovertible statements. Two of these are scriptural, one of these are, is a logical statement. Two scriptural, one logical. Number one, this is what leads us to understand that the cross is an atoning sacrifice. Scriptural statement, scriptural truth, number one, get it. The entire world, this is found in Romans 1 through 3, by the way. The entire world, both the Jews as those with the law of God written down for them, the Jews and the Gentiles, those who have God's law written in their hearts, on their consciences, both the Jews who have the explicit written law of God and the Gentiles who have God's law written on our hearts, both the Jews and the Gentiles stand guilty before God. Again, I could read all of Romans 1 through 3 because this is what Paul goes across the street to say. Both the Jews and the Gentiles are guilty before God. Listen to his summary in Romans 3 of this truth. Paul says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, that is both Jew and Gentile, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he summarizes it this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And who is under the law? All of us both Jew and Gentile, Jews because it's been written down for them and Gentiles because it's been written on our hearts. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The entire world stands guilty. Truth number two from Scripture, we see that the guilt of man has incurred the righteous wrath of God. In Romans 1, Paul says it this way, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Again, the Gentiles, we have everything in creation to prove to us who God is. And yet we suppress this truth. We reject Him. We do not worship Him. We do not honor Him and acknowledge Him as God or give Him thanks. We live our lives completely separate from Him, acting as if He owes us something. We are guilty. And this brings wrath, just wrath. Romans 2, Paul deals with the Jews 
when he says to the Jew, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The guilt of man, both Jew and Gentile, has incurred the righteous wrath of God. The wrath of God is not unfair. It is righteous. It is just. And then this leads us to make a logical conclusion. Man is guilty. The whole world stands guilty before God. This guilt brings on the wrath of God against sin. And this leads us to incontrovertible statement number three. No one can make a fitting atonement on their own behalf. No one can make up for their sin. No one. I could never atone for my sin. I could never atone for my sin against an eternally holy God. Nothing that I do, no sacrifices I make, nothing I give could adequately atone for what I've done. Even death for my sin, even death for my sin, while just and fitting, I should die for my sin. The wages of sin is death. But even if I were to die for my sin, that does not cover the offense of my sin. It is just the penalty paid. It does not restore the glory to God that has been robbed. It does not right the wrong that has been committed. My simple death would just be punishment, insufficient to atone for what I have done against God. So, God's punishment given to me could never adequately atone for it. Not only that, get this, this is so important, not only that, but in paying for my sin, in experiencing the just punishment against my sin from God, in paying for my sin, I would not suffer that punishment justly. In other words, I would not suffer that punishment righteously. I would curse God even as he is delivering the sentence of death upon my life. I would not see his punishment as fair. I would not see his punishment as just. I would not take it in silence. I would not take it in submission. I would go to the death trying to plead my case, making God out to be the liar and me righteous. Isn't that what we do? So not only could my death not atone completely for my sin, but even in suffering, I would continue my sin against God. I would curse God even as he's delivering the sentence of death. In other words, I would sin in that punishment, increasing the offense and the debt, con continually compounding my guilt before God. This, by the way, is why the punishment for sin is eternal. Page 281 in our hymnals. 
Jesus paid it all. What is the answer to this problem that we see? Man is guilty before God and this guilt has incurred the wrath of God and there is nothing we can do to atone for our sin, nothing we can do to atone for our sin and our guilt before God. That is why we sing, Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne... I stand in him complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The cross is an atoning sacrifice that answers the need of atonement perfectly, fully, completely. How is this possible? How is this possible? And that leads us to the second point. The cross is an atoning sacrifice of penal substitution. Penal being penalty. The cross is an atoning sacrifice of penal substitution. Scripture teaches us that the atoning work of Christ on the cross was accomplished in the place of guilty sinners. He was put forward as a substitute. The guilt of sinful man was imputed to him. And he bore the full and complete penalty due for sin. Now, to be sure, the cross accomplishes. There will always be somebody who wants to, but, but, but there's more than that, right? Yes, the, the cross accomplishes more than penal substitution. His death, for instance, has been given as an example for us, 1 Peter 2. In his death, he has shown us how to live. He has set an example. Also in his death, Colossians 1 says, he has defeated his enemies. Satan and all of the spiritual forces opposed to him and his kingdom. He has won the victory in his cross against his opposers. But while there is much more that the, Christ has, the cross has accomplished, listen, we must not say less than that Jesus has willingly obediently, joyfully given his life as a substitute for us. He has taken our penalty. He has taken our death and fully satisfied the requirements of the law, fully satisfied the wrath of God against sin, in the cross, we cannot say less than that it is a penal substitutionary atonement. 
However, the idea of penal substitution is gross to some people. It's become extremely unpopular in some circles of evangelical Christianity, so-called. And there are at least two accusations. There are some more, but I've tried to summarize. There are at least two accusations put forth against penal substitutionary atonement. First, there is an accusation against penal substitutionary atonement. There is an accusation of legal fiction. You know what I mean by that? You know what fiction is? Fiction is make-believe. So there's the accusation of legal fiction. It is legal make-believe to think that one can take on the guilt of another. Even if you were to die for someone else's crime, that does not transfer the guilt to you. The guilty party remains guilty. And the death of the one who has taken your place is really unjust. The idea here is that penal substitution is a nice idea, but not based in reality of how justice works. This is where our man-made systems and legal requirements and legal structures let us down. They do not adequately comprehend what has taken place in the cross. We have very clearly Scripture's testimony, what we read earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53. Can I just quote some of the passage here again for us? Listen to some of these excerpts from Isaiah 52 and 53. Listen to substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement here in these chapters. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2, seems to agree with Isaiah 52 and 53. Listen to the words of Peter. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, the, to him who judges justly. He himself, this is Peter talking again, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. The apostles speak often of this penal substitution 
I couldn't quote all of the passages. I mean, it permeates the entire New Testament. But in the apostles' description, they use four prepositions. Usually, in our Bibles, just translated simply for, which we think to mean on behalf of, and we'd be right in that, but it, it has some other nuance to it. Perry translated for or concerning most often. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Dia, translated because of or for the sake of. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, might become rich. The strongest preposition, anti, signifying in place of. Listen to Mark 10, 45. These are the words of Jesus himself. For even the Son of Man, he says, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for or in the place of many. The most frequent preposition used, huper, meaning on behalf of, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the point. Even though our limited minds cannot grasp how the guilt of one can in reality be imputed to another, making the penalty suffered truly just, although our minds cannot comprehend this, it is nonetheless true. God has done it. In the cross, Jesus has taken the guilt of sin Really? He has taken the guilt of sin and paid, justly paid, fully paid, completely paid its penalty. And unlike us who go on sinning, he did not sin in experiencing the punishment of God against sin. He was obedient, he was righteous. He carried our sin perfectly. He has been given as the substitute to bear our penalty, to suffer in our place, and to truly remove our guilt. And as I just said, this atonement, the atonement of Christ, oh, this is, this is so glorious. The atonement of Christ on the cross is the act of a perfectly obedient son. Jesus is not only innocent, he is perfectly righteous. Fulfilling all the commands and expectations of the law of God. Did you know that's what he does in his life? He lives a life that completely satisfies all of the, com all of the commands and all the prescriptions and all the requirements of the law. I have broken the law. I am guilty before God under the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. 
completely. And it is he who in obedience goes to the cross as our substitute. As our substitute. Get this, our sinful wretchedness, our sinful guilty life is given to him. It becomes his life. And in perfect obedience, he dies, really dies and pays the penalty for my sin. And in exchange, my life is given to him, my wretchedness and guilt is given to him, and in exchange, he gives me his obedience and righteousness. He takes my life and he gives me his life. This is what it means that he is our substitute. He suffers and dies while we experience the favor of God. And all of this is not legal fiction, but actually true. I hope that in your heart somewhere you're saying, praise be to God. How did I sing this earlier and not weep? How did I sing this earlier and not rejoice? How did I sing this earlier and not have my heart stirred by this? How do I think about anything else in life other than him? He's given everything for me. Wow. The second accusation, I'll try to go more quickly. The second accusation made against penal substitution is that for God to put forward his son in this way, for God to put forward his son to experience wrath in this bloody way is a gross miscarriage of justice. Maybe you've heard the accusation. This is on par with divine child abuse. God wouldn't do this to his son. How unfair, how gross, how base. But this accusation is to completely disregard the Trinitarian reality of the plan and purposes of salvation. Was it not the delight of the Son to do the will of His Father? Is not the will of the Son and the will of the Father the same? Jesus did not go to the cross against His will, but to fulfill the will of His Father. And Jesus Himself, did He not say that He lays down His life of His own accord? Listen to John 10. He says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The fact is, the fact is that most of the aversion to the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement has less to do with the lack of scriptural support. Even those who are against penal substitution will admit that if you take the scriptures at face value, this is exactly what the scriptures teach. Even the opponents say that. It's not due to a lack of scriptural support. The opposition is not due to a lack of scriptural support, for it is abundant more so it is because of the denial of two fundamental truths. 
man is wicked and God is angry at sin. Man, really, I heard a preacher say it. It was kind of a cute way to say it, but I want you to get, man really is that bad. And God really is that mad. But we don't want to accept either one of these. We don't like to think of our sin as it is. We don't like to think of God. We don't want to believe the truth of the doctrine of sin. We don't want to believe the truth of the doctrine of divine wrath. But as soon as we diminish the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of wrath, we lose the doctrine of penal substitution. On the other side of this, if you want to see the awfulness of man's sin, if you want to see the surety of God's wrath against sin, then you need look no further than the cross. You want to see who you are. Look to the cross to see what your sin deserves. Well, I'm, I'm not that bad. No, you can't look at the cross and think that you're okay. This is why we've got to get rid of the cross. It is on the cross we see sin and the justice of God perfectly displayed. And this serves to bring us to our final point. The cross is an atoning sacrifice of penal substitution for the glory of God. Let me just ask this question. Was the cross necessary? Was the cross necessary? Before you answer the question, just just think on it for a moment. Was the cross necessary? Well, you must first ask another question. Was it necessary for God to save? The answer to that question is no. God is not required to save. It is not necessary for God to save. Therefore, the cross on that level is not necessary. So then you have to ask yourself the question, why then the cross? Penal substitutionary atonement provides the solution for us. Why the cross? We find in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 tells us that before the world was created, God made a decision to save. God is not required to save, but God made a decision to save. Well, what motivated God to save? Ephesians 1, again, tells us clearly that he places his choosing love upon his people before the world began. His love for his people begins the entire plan of salvation. 
However, his love for his people cannot and will not compromise his justice towards sin. Therefore, his love demands justice. Because he has chosen to love his people and because he must judge sin, the cross becomes necessary. One theologian says it this way, in a word, while it is not inherently necessary for God to save, yet since salvation had been purposed, it was necessary to secure this salvation through a satisfaction that could be rendered only through a substitutionary sacrifice and blood-bought redemption. But then you have to ask another question. Okay, he was motivated by love and this required his justice because he can't compromise his justice. So there, therefore you are brought to this penal substitutionary atonement. But, but what is all this about? Wasn't it his decision in the first place to create the world? What is all of this about? I believe if you look at Scripture, if you look and consider what, what God has done and what God has said, you can come to no other conclusion than that the cross is first and foremost, his plan and purposes of salvation, it's first and foremost about his glory. What motivated his love? It was his glory. What demands justice? It is his glory. The cross then and the penal substitutionary atonement of the Son perfectly displays the glory of God. The cross is where we see glory. You want to know who God is? I'm going to caution you not to listen to the culture, not to listen to your own thoughts even as definitive. I would encourage you to look to the cross. You want to know who God is? Look at the cross. This is where we see God in his perfect love and his perfect justice. This is where we see God in his glory. Therefore, the rejection... This is a strong statement, and I mean it. The rejection or the diminishing of the penal substitutionary atonement diminishes the glory of God. It is a direct attack on the truth of who God is. And, and, and I, I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to plead with you. Maybe because you like to see yourself as intellectually arrived, you would like to dismiss substitutionary atonement and move on to something more civilized. This is false. This is pride. This is self-exaltation. For penal substitutionary atonement drives us to our knees, humbles us, it teaches us the truth about the glory of God and it teaches us the truth about who we are. It should anchor our life. It should define us and how we understand ourselves. Close with a song. Page 185 for those who are keeping track. In our hymnal, Here is Love. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, 
shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here is love that conquered evil. Christ, the firstborn from the grave, death has failed to be found equal to the life of him who saves In the valley of our darkness dawned his everlasting light. Perfect love and glorious radiance has repelled death's hellish night. That same love, beyond all measure mocked and slain by hateful men, lives and reigns in resurrection and can never die again. Here is love for all the ages. Radiant son of heaven he stands, calling home his father's children, holding forth his wounded hands. Here is love, vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above are the souls that he has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. Father, we thank you for the truth of the atoning sacrifice made on the cross, the atoning sacrifice of penal substitution, which displays your glory. Teach us. Teach us at the foot of the cross its meaning. Keep us near the cross. And I pray that you would Point us there to find glory, to find meaning and satisfaction that we would look to the payment of the cross, the substitution that was made. Lord, teach us, humble us, create in us joy, create in us thankfulness and gratitude as we see the weightiness of what has been accomplished. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. Amen.